I suspect that masks may have been among the first artworks. We all know about cave paintings because they're very durable. We have cave paintings that are tens That's of thousands great. of years old. Masks aren't going to last that long, but I had a very powerful experience um, years ago where uh, I was in graduate school. I was invited to a Halloween costume party. I procrastinated. I left my costume to the last minute. So I'm at the costume store on the afternoon of the 31st of October, and there wasn't much left. The only half-decent object left was a a really scary-looking zebra mask from Tanzania. It had kind of smoky-looking eyes, like it had risen from the dead. And then I came up with the proper clothing to wear with that, a, a black turtleneck with white adhesive tape stripes. So I went and I won the contest. Um, people love my costume. And then I took it to my parents in Iowa and left it in a locked cabinet for years. And then years later, I was back visiting my parents and I noticed that mask. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember this. And I pulled it out and put it on. And my parents' two dogs more or less lost their minds when I put it on, even though these dogs had known me since they were puppies. They knew what I smelled like, and smell is much more important for dogs, of course, right? But they were barking at me like I was truly a monster, and they wanted me dead. And one of the dogs actually came up to the side and jumped up and knocked the mask off my face. He was so disturbed by this. So that somehow when you put on a mask, you are transformed, especially for animals and children, um, an animal, a child can put on a Spider-Man mask or a, a Batman mask and they think you can't see them. And then in the adult realm, um, the mask of the Ku Klux Klan, what is so terrifying about that? It's not just that it symbolizes certain abhorrent racist views. It's that the mask itself is also terrifying. It makes them somehow inhuman. Just the fact that they're wearing that. They wouldn't be nearly as scary if you saw their faces. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 89. And this episode is with Graham Harmon, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at SciArc, the Southern California Institute of Architecture in Los Angeles. And Graham is one of the leading metaphysicians in the continental tradition of philosophy, which is one of the many things that made this episode particularly fun for me. Because while I'm fairly well-versed in analytic philosophy, which is the other of the, the two, I'd say, dominant philosophical traditions in today's academia, I know so little about continental metaphysics, which was, it made this episode particularly enlightening for me. So Graham is best known for his work on Heidegger's tool analysis which, so he's not best known for that. He's best known for what came out of his work on Heidegger's tool analysis, which is his own views on metaphysics, which have become known as object-oriented ontology or triple O, and which are situated in the contemporary trend in con continental metaphysics known as speculative realism. Graham is also a very, very influential philosopher of art, which is one reason you might have guessed why he teaches at an architecture school. And we get into this. But first, we get into speculative realism and Graham's debate with his friend Slavoj Žižek and more generally about object-oriented ontology. And I don't want to say too much more about what this is since I am not the expert on it. So I'll let Graham do that when the episode starts. And we then, after talking about Triple O, though 
Triple O plays into Graham's philosophy of art. We talk about the philosophy of art, which is another very under-discussed topic on this podcast, and I'm hoping to do much, much more of that in the future. So Graham's written a book on H.P. Lovecraft, and that's where we get started. And after talking about H.P. Lovecraft, we talk about a number of other aspects. Uh, Well, I guess that's philosophy of literature, but we, we talk about a bunch of figures in the philosophy of art. But some of the things we touch on are surrealism and Dada and Gothic architecture and plenty of other things beside. And if you find that section of the episode particularly compelling, then you might want to check out Graham's book, Architecture and Objects, which I've linked in the description. So I always have to say, please leave reviews, comments, likes, subscribes. Uh, There are a lot more of you that I know are listening than I have comments, likes, reviews, and subscribes. So that would be really awesome. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Graham. Many, uh, probably most actually, of the the guests that I've had on the show so far have been analytic philosophers. And as I already told you, this is a tradition that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with. But I've actually, I've only had the privilege so far of talking to one other philosopher on the show that most people would uh, classify as continental, and that's Javi Carroll, who works in uh, the phenomenology. Yeah, so she works in the phenomenology of illness. That episode hasn't come out yet, but Mm -hmm. we talked a fair bit about phenomenology. But anyway, so I know while this is a large question that could take days and days and, and books to answer... I think a nice place to start would be just how you think about the continental tradition and where your work or interests lie in that pretty big landscape. Originally, I would have called myself someone coming out of the phenomenological tradition, which is fairly typical starting point in the continental uh, landscape, uh, except for those who aim a bit later and call themselves Derridians or Foucaultians. Or now we have Deleuzians and Baudelians as well. But uh, traditionally, phenomenology was a fairly standard place to begin in the continental tradition. I started uh, with an interest in Husserl, actually, in my undergraduate years. I was drawn to the idea of philosophy as a rigorous science, that we should focus solely on how things are given to us and do a very, very accurate description of that, and that that would be a kind of unshakable starting point for philosophy. We're talking age 19 or So um, when that interested me, Uh, then I drifted more into Heidegger uh, starting my sophomore year, and that took me all the way through my doctoral work. And I think I was drawn in that case to Heidegger's sense of a darker background lying behind the phenomena, uh, especially in his tool analysis, the idea that primarily things do not become consciously available to us. Uh, there's a, another layer back there that you can actually say something about. It's not just a, a tar- the target of a negative theology, but something you can actually say a bit about. And so my doctoral dissertation ended up being about uh, the tool analysis in being in time, which, of course, is well known. And, of course, it's it's very well known even in the analytic tradition now, thanks to Hubert Dreyfus and some others. I simply don't like the way it's usually interpreted. I think this way of interpreting 
Heidegger's Zuhandenheit either as a kind of praxis that precedes theory or as an unthematic sociological background, I don't think those go far enough. Uh, because for me, uh, when you're using a tool, you're not any closer to it than you are when you're talking about it or looking at it. Uh, you're still oversimplifying what that thing is. You're still humanizing it, even if you're doing it in unconscious practical terms rather than in conscious perceptual or theoretical ones. And uh, so that was the first step in, in trying to read Heidegger differently from others. And then at some point, the big breakthrough for me was noticing while I was working on my PhD that the same has to be true about object-object interactions as well. So that we, we tend to associate finitude with some kind of consciousness, right? That um, the reason the Kantian subject is finite, the reason we can't get at the things in themselves is because we're conscious. And there are somehow certain features built into consciousness that are transcendental structures that we can't get around, such as time, space, and the 12 categories. Mm -hmm. But it occurred to me at some point that, no, the, the real key going on with finitude is that relations don't exhaust their terms and that you don't really need to be a mind for that to happen. I was thinking uh, later when I was in Egypt and working on Islamic philosophy more and on the, the traditional Islamic problem of fire burning cotton, which, uh, which was something talked a lot about a lot in the Islamic tradition in the Middle Ages, that when fire burns cotton, neither fire nor cotton are really interacting fully with each other either. They're turning each other into caricatures. The fire is dealing with flammable aspects of the cotton. The cotton is dealing with whatever aspects of fire it deals with, but both fire and cotton are a lot deeper than that interaction. And so it's simply a problem with relationality in general being finite. And human finitude is simply a, a special case of that. So that's how I started with Heidegger and ended up with something totally non-Heideggerian. And one of the um, precedents there is Alfred North Whitehead, because um, let me just do a small digression here. You might know A.W. Moore's book with Cambridge, The Cambridge History of Modern Metaphysics, um, big, thick purple book. And one of the admirable things about that book that draws a lot of people to it is that it's very tolerant when it comes to the analytic continental divide. So there's, you know, of course, there are chapters in there on Descartes and Spinoza and so forth, Kant. But then there are also chapters on... Um, Quine and Carnap and Davidson. There are also chapters on Bergson and Derrida and Deleuze. So it looks like here's someone who's really trying to be as broad as possible in his history of modern metaphysics. No chapter on Whitehead, who, um, you know, some people said when David Lewis died that he was the greatest metaphysician since Leibniz. I think I would give that prize to Whitehead. Whitehead is somebody who tried to do metaphysics with a capital M. Hmm. And I know in the analytic tradition, he's mostly known for his association with Russell and the Principia Mathematica. Yeah. In the continental world, he's mostly read by Deleuzeans who follow Deleuze's over Deleuzean reading of him. Uh, but what's really remarkable about uh, Whitehead to me is the way he kind of fearlessly said, in some sense, we should go back to before Kant's. Human perceptual immediacy is just a very special case of relations between any two entities in general. Where I depart from Whitehead, of course, is that Whitehead relationizes everything, that any relation, any entity is in some sense dissolvable into all the relations it has, positive or negative, with everything in the universe. Whereas for me, I'm more of an old substance person in the Aristotelian tradition. I don't think a relation exhausts its terms. So one way of looking at my philosophy is it's, um, you can look at it in terms of its continental antecedents, Husserl and Heidegger and a little Whitehead. I like to see myself as simply being in the Aristotelian tradition, 
with some large modifications added. So I see myself as bro- belonging to a pretty old tradition going back over 2000 years. Well, you've said a, a number of things that could that could take us in a variety of different directions. Uh, the tool analysis, for one, uh, mm-hmm. the association of finitude with consciousness. And I actually know about Whitehead mainly through his connections to the continental tradition. And mm-hmm. that's namely in the form of his connection to Husserl and formal ontology and his work on Mariology. Mm-hmm. But... What I'd like to talk about today, and I think these things, maybe not Whitehead, will all come back to relate to it, uh, is in order of the general to the more particular, uh, the speculative realist trend in contemporary continental metaphysics, and then triple O, uh, object-oriented ontology, which you're most closely associated with. And then finally, its relationship to architecture, aesthetics, and then some other areas. Mm-hmm. But how quite broadly, before we get into triple O, do you characterize this trend of speculative realism? Speculative realism refers specifically to a workshop that was held in London at Goldsmiths uh, in April 2007. That was the idea of Ray Brassier, who is now at the American University of Beirut. At the time, he was in London at Middlesex University. He had invited me in 2005 to give a lecture after discovering my first book, Tool Being. And simply by chance, the following year, I had to fly on a strange route. I was trying to get from uh, Nice, France, back to Barcelona to get my flight back to Egypt. I had to fly through London to do it. Brassier was the only person I sort of knew well enough in London to ask if I could crash at his place for the night. Thought it'd be nice to see him again. So I did. kindly offered I stay at his place. And he asked me uh, that evening as I was over at his place uh, if I was familiar with Ian Hamilton Grant at the University University of the West of England in Bristol. And I said, no, I actually was. I'd forgotten. And he said that Grant had also given an interesting paper uh, there the previous year. And he thought about getting the three of us together for a, a workshop, since we seemed to be three of the people who were doing something like a speculative metaphysics, which is very rare within the continental tradition. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. Shortly thereafter, Brassier went to Paris and came back and told me he discovered a new book called Après la Finitude by a French philosopher who's a former disciple of Badiou named Quentin Meassou. Uh, I ordered that book immediately. Brassier didn't have time to read it. So I ordered it and I read it uh, right away. And I emailed Brassier saying, "This this is great stuff. We should invite him to the party, too. And so then that kind of triggered Brassier's efforts to get his friend uh, Alberto Toscano to organize the workshop at Goldsmiths for the following year. And so the four of us came together. And in some sense, all four of us were taking a kind of realist approach to philosophy in different ways. And, you know, a lot of analytic philosophers in the the aftermath have kind of chuckled in that and said, oh, what a great breakthrough, realism. Well, uh, except that realism has never really been a live option in the continental tradition the way it has in the analytic tradition. Right. The, st- the standard continental position on realism was always the Husserl-Heidegger position that it's a pseudo problem, whether the world exists outside the mind, because we're always already outside of ourselves and in intending objects or in using equipment. And therefore, the whole realism-anti-realism dispute is, is a false problem. 
And we weren't exactly the first in the continental tradition to question that. There was always Nikolai Hartmann, who was a contemporary of Heidegger, but he kind of fell by the wayside in the wake of phenomenology, and he's just being revived now. Then there was Maurizio Ferraris in Italy in the early 90s. And then there was Manuel Delanda, who's a realist Deleuzian, who started the same year I did, 2002, when I wrote my realist interpretation of Heidegger. So it is, it's pretty new. It's 20 years old or so in the continental tradition that realism has been a, a live option and it's not being accepted. The, the standard continental objection to us is still the same one, that transcendental philosophy somehow renders the realism, anti-realism dispute a pseudo problem. So that's what made us different, I think, as a group. And we only held two workshops. We held another one two years later, and Mayasu already didn't attend uh, for that one. So already wasn't the same group. And then shortly after that, there was a falling out among some of the group members. So it never never appeared again. And it's turned into kind of a feud. Although I, I see that as not so important because speculative realism is out there. People are referring to it. You know, There are book series. There are journals about it. It did its work regardless of what the former members think about it. Now it's, it's out there as a live option. Yeah. And it seems like within speculative realism, triple O the launching point, and you've already touched at this is a sort of skepticism about our connection to the external world. Uh, which I think of as something like the, the Kantian noumena and in your book, object oriented ontology, um, a theory of everything. You write that since reality is always radically different from our formulation of it and is never something we encounter directly in the flesh, we must approach it indirectly. And mm -hmm. this brings me back, or when I read it again, I think of what you, the story you told about the Islamic philosophy and the, the cotton and the fire and how the cotton mm -hmm. and the fire are never Interact, interacting directly with one another. It's just, uh, I think you said, making caricatures of one another. They're interacting with perhaps properties of one another. And I guess first I, I have to ask why it is that reality is something we aren't in contact with, because it certainly seems on the face of it that that's what I'm in contact with right now uh, when we're talking. And then how it is that we're supposed to approach it indirectly then. All right. Uh, you called it skepticism, which a lot of people call it as well. I like to call it instead a very committed form of fallibilism. Um, so for me, the reason it's not quite a skepticism is that you can gain some sort of indirect access to reality, but it's indirect. And I would just okay. say, first of all, I think that's what philosophia has always meant in the true sense, going back to ancient Greek philosophy, that wisdom is not attainable. There's a kind of love of wisdom. And um, I think what's happened is that in the modern period, we've become so enamored of the great success of the natural sciences that we've started to rethink of philosophy as a form of knowledge. It's perhaps the most general form of knowledge. Whereas for me, philosophy yeah. is absolutely not a form of knowledge, not so much because I'm a skeptic, but because I'm not a literalist. Uh, knowledge for me, is essentially a, the, knowledge comes in two flavors for me, which I call undermining and overmining. Somebody asks you what something is, you can tell them what it's made of or tell them what it does, or both at once. Those are really the options. And when you're doing that, you're losing sight of the thing itself. You're either expressing it in terms of the historical backstory behind it or the pe smaller pieces it's made of, 
or else you're going the other direction and talking about its effect on the mind or the effect on the world. Whereas that's, it's neither of those things. It's more than its pieces and it's less than its effects. It's a kind of third level in between those. And that's a third level you have to get at indirectly. And I guess I'm already talking here about the indirect point, which was your second question. So maybe I'll just start with that one. Um, literalism for me, which is the underpinning of every form of knowledge, is a form of Hume's dogma, as I see it, that objects are really just bundles of qualities. That uh, to know an object, all you have to do is successfully state truly all the properties it actually has. And then you've got the knowledge of the thing. And even if we add the proviso that we know we're never going to get it completely, I think that's a wrongheaded way to look at the object. Because for me, the object is always in tension with its qualities. The object is something fundamentally different from its qualities. Uh, and so, incidentally, I don't think this is a new idea. I think you get this from the minute that, um, no later than Aristotle def uh, talking about substance and saying, uh, if it is not philosophy, then what discipline is it that asks whether Socrates standing and Socrates sitting are one and the same? Which is kind of one of the funny passages in the metaphysics. But what he's hmm. saying is that Socrates can be Socrates and has only a loose relationship to sitting or standing. Right. Uh, that even though Socrates, yeah, even, even though he's always doing one of those or the other, uh, an object has only a loose relation with its own qualities. And that's, that's right. a, a bulwark of Aristotle's theory of substance. Yeah, I think um, you're, what you're referring to is that there's this usia, or I think it's the, the ultimate subject of predication that is different from these predicates themselves. Yes, and I wouldn't call it a bare particular because each one has its own specific essence. And I just don't think the essence can be summed up additively by listing all the qualities that make it up. It's, it has more of a unity than that. And then a couple other moments, uh, one of them would be in uh, Leibniz early in the monadology, I think it's paragraph seven, where he says every monad is one, but it also has a plurality of qualities. Otherwise, all monads would be interchangeable. And so then there's another insight uh, there that uh, the object, the monad and its qualities are in tension somehow. And then finally, the phenomenal version that comes back in Husserl, I see Husserl primarily as a strong anti-Humean, because in Husserl's case, uh, what phenomenology is all about is the various adumbrations of the thing can all be stripped away to get at the essence. And so you have an intentional object, which is something deeper than all of the possible adumbrations. You don't get the thing by adding up all the different viewpoints somebody can have on it. You have to strip all those away to get towards the essence of the intentional object. And then what Husserl does is he comes to the essence and he makes what in my mind is a large mistake when he says that it's the intellect that knows the essence. It's only the senses that are trapped at the level of the adumbrations. Whereas again, for me, the intellects can't get it at the thing any more directly than the senses can, any more than praxis can in Heidegger's sense. That the thing itself is always something more than any human access to it, or indeed any causal interaction with it. And so um, that's what I mean about indirect uh, access to the thing. And it takes many forms. Some of them are aesthetic because obviously in the arts, the goal is not to produce knowledge. That's a, it's a, an important form of cognition, I would say, aesthetics, but it's not one that can be literalized. If you try to explain in prose terms what the meaning of a Picasso painting is, you're not going to have exhausted it. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, there is a literal element to paintings. I don't know if you saw the story today. They just renamed one of Van Gogh's paintings, which had been called... That. Yeah, it had been called for 80 years uh, red cabbages with onions until a chef noticed it was actually garlic. No one had noticed this. 
So just today they renamed it, uh, or at least the story was just today, they renamed it Red Cabbages and Garlic. So that huh. that's a literal change that changes the painting in some way because it changes what the painting is indexing. But primarily you're not trying to gain knowledge from your account of an artwork. And there are other examples like uh, rhetoric, which is frowned on these days, but was a great branch of classical education because Aristotle tells us that in rhetoric, it's a matter of the background. It's a matter of something you don't say. Like uh, if you say this man was crowned three times with laurel, you're not supposed to say because he won the Olympics three times because every ancient Greek knows that. And it's rhetorically more powerful to imply that rather than to say it. And so uh, rhetoric is also something that lies in the background that you're not literally stating because it's somehow cognitively more powerful to leave certain things unsaid. Um, I think the case of speech act theory is related to this when they talk about performative statements as opposed to constitutive ones, which are merely communicating literal facts in their statements, whereas a performative statement is committing you to something. It's it's changing reality rather than just uh transmitting literal information. So all of these different things play a role in human cognition. They are not all forms of knowledge. And uh, in some way, they're all indirect as well. And I think just not enough has been said about this because we have been so eager to mimic the natural sciences and do everything the way they do. And I think that's, that's even more true of analytic philosophy, obviously. Yeah, so absolutely. That's actually what I was going to ask you about. Um, before we get back to triple O, Mm -hmm. uh, a comment you made that you don't think of philosophy as a form of knowledge. I found this very interesting. And I was wondering if if this is just a Graham harmonism or if this is a common way of thinking about philosophy in the continental tradition. Because as you mentioned, at least for those analytic philosophers who think of philosophy as being continuous with natural science, right. philosophy can lead to knowledge in the same way that science can. I think in the negative sense, in continental philosophy, you find a certain uh, resistance to incorporating the natural sciences uh, that comes very much from Heidegger, who infamously claimed that science does not think. I don't think people in continental philosophy tend to spell out exactly what the implications of that are. So no, that, that's not something I just picked up atmospherically when I say that philosophy is not a form of knowledge. Um, it's something I came up with through my own work, but then saw that in my view, that's already what philosophia was about in Socrates and to some extent in Plato and Aristotle. But yes, I think it's one of the regrettable facts about continental philosophy that it, people tend not to be as well educated in the natural sciences because they tend to see it, maybe enemy is too strong a word, but they tend to see it as something other than what they're doing. So I guess in that sense, I bear the stamp of the continental tradition from which I come. But um, uh, I think that's more in the negative sense in the continental tradition. I don't think there's, you, you don't find much of a positive elaboration of how philosophy differs from the sciences. Okay, well, returning back to triple O then for the moment, I found a, a number of principles or basic principles of triple O that I wanted to ask you about to get some more foundation before we move on to some of its applications or the way it touches on other humanities and areas of inquiry. But one of these principles was that all objects must be given equal attention, whether mm -hmm. they be human, non-human, natural, cultural, real, or fictional. And I think that I, I read this elsewhere, uh, but that you 
engage in a debate with uh, Zizek just about this, if I'm interpreting what that debate was about mm-hmm. uh, correctly, in that he thinks that, or he had a much more subject-focused uh, approach to mm-hmm. dealing with uh, objects in the world. That's right. Zizek very much comes from two traditions, one of them being the German idealist tradition and the other being Lacanian psychoanalysis. And uh, Zizek's a friend. I like what he does. We have totally different starting points. Uh, Zizek accepts basically the German idealist argument against Kant's thing in itself that if you try to think something outside thought, you've turned it into a thought and therefore you don't really escape the circle. And insofar as Zizek tries to escape it, he escapes it through psychoanalysis, which um, treats the human subject as a kind of unique point of madness that is somehow able to break through. And for me, uh, the thing in itself uh, can't be defeated that easily, because I don't think you can just say that by thinking a thing outside thought, you turn it into a thought, because you can still point at it. You can still index the thing in itself. And so I don't accept the idea that we're stuck initially within a circle of thoughts. Um, for instance, I, this has to do with my thoughts about finitude. Uh, the reason he, we know that humans are finite is not because we are humans, and, and therefore we are able to make a definite statement about humans that we cannot make about non-humans. We deduce our own finitude. Finitude is not given to us. Human experience is given to us perhaps in some way, but finitude is not given to us. That's a deduction. I have to deduce that, hey, Kant pointed out that there are these categories that structure my thoughts and there's space and time. And if you think about it, maybe another experience is possible that doesn't have those categories and isn't in space and time. That's a deduction. And I can make that same deduction for fire and cotton. Hey, fire and cotton are also finite, just as much as I am. The same thing applies to all these other things. So I don't think we are stuck with an initial human starting point to which we have unique access. Um, So... For me, the argument about the thing in itself uh, is actually a powerful one. I don't think it's as easily swept away uh, as it is as the German idealists and, and people like Zizek tend to think. So uh, that's why I think all objects must be discussed in equal terms. It's primarily that that statement is aimed against the supremacy of the human subject that we've seen for the past few centuries. That that's the start unique starting point. We have to start there. That's what I'm against. Well, I'll ask about something particular to this principle that I just voiced, which is all objects must be given equal attention. And then the last sort of object that you listed was fictional objects. And Mm -hmm. fictional objects have been a subject of great attention also in analytic philosophy. Before we started, you mentioned uh, Graham Priest. Graham Priest and I did a whole episode on the metaphysics of nothingness, and we touched on uh, fictional objects. So I'm I'm curious in this object-oriented ontology, how you think of the ontology of fictional objects and where they sort of where they rest in the external world, so to speak. Yes, um, what I am comfortable talking about today is that it, there are two kinds of objects in object-oriented ontology: the real and the sensual. Just like there are two different kinds yeah. of qualities. And the real object is simply the object as such, the object insofar as it is, uh, regardless of its relations to any other objects at the moment, whereas the sensual object is the object as it appears in relation to other things. And uh, 
a lot of fictional objects and a lot of the problems with inflationary ontology that people accuse Triple O of can be handled simply by saying you can create unlimited sensual objects. It's not a problem. Uh, you can you can imagine the possible fat man in the doorway that Quine makes fun of, and it, that's it, it's not harmful to think of the possible fat man in the doorway as a sensual object. It's we don't run into a lot of Meinung's problems for that reason. Um, however, there also comes a threshold that you cross where a sensual object does become a real one. I just got a question in email about this this morning. For example, Lovecraft's monster Cthulhu, which I am deliberately mispronouncing. Lovecraft apparently wanted it to be pronounced something like or something crazy in the throat that I can't do. I'm just going to call it Cthulhu like it looks. Uh, there's a sense in which Cthulhu is now a real object uh, because Cthulhu has become a social object to reckon with. It's possible to write a bad piece of Lovecraft fan fiction if you were to write a story about Cthulhu where the Cthulhu you, you wrote about was unbelievable, did things that Cthulhu would never do. Uh, someone would say, that's not really Cthulhu. That's, that's, you've messed it up. You've done the wrong monster here. Like you know, somebody writes a piece of Lovecraft fan fiction where Cthulhu is cracking jokes. Obviously, you've gone astray somewhere. That's not part of the character. Um, so there comes a point at which an object becomes a real object, an object that everyone has to take into account, much the same way that a city does, right? The, the city of Los Angeles, which I've been living in now for almost four years, there are certain things about Los Angeles style. You know, even though Los Angeles is, is in some sense a figment of the human imagination in the sense that humans had to build it, it's humans who recognize it on a map. The city of Los Angeles nonetheless has a history and a tradition and real traits that you have to adapt to. So for instance, uh, when you come here, you find that people don't really use their turn signals when getting off of ramps here. And habitually, I, as a polite Iowa driver, kept doing that for a long time. And then after a couple of years, I realized I look like kind of a dork because nobody does that here. And so now I have retroactively trained myself not to always use turn signals when I get off at, at um, freeway off-ramps, even though it's less safe. I've just acculturated myself somehow to Los Angeles. So that's, that's a case of something that might have originally started as a fictional object, as a, a dream in someone's mind. Just like Cthulhu was originally a private daydream of Howard Phillips Lovecraft, but then takes on a certain reality that starts having retroactive effects on the things around it. And so I think the problem of fictional, object go, fictional objects goes beyond art. Uh, it, goes, uh, it comes into view anytime you're talking about objects that are originally merely relational, merely sensual, but that somehow cross the line into taking on a life of their own. That is, that's actually I, your... Uh, anticipating where I'm going to go every time, and that's good. And because I was going to ask about this distinction between real and sensual objects, and I was going to ask you about sensual objects becoming real objects, because you write, you've written also that real objects cannot relate to one another directly, but only direct, indirectly, by right. means of a sensual object. And I'm wondering if, uh, if that, if an example of this would be. I mean, there's something real here, uh, this cup that I'm holding for those mm -hmm. listening, but I'm not in contact with the real object. I'm in contact with the sensual object, which is some sort of, uh, it has its, it's a, it has a metaphysical status. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it exists sort of in my mind as, as sense experience in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. 
Is that roughly correct? It is. And I could talk a little about the history of where okay, the sense great. of logic comes from. There are plenty of people, uh, especially in analytic philosophy now, who simply don't think the merely intentional object is worth saving, that it causes more problems than it's worth. And the reason I don't think that, well, first of all, Husserl has the intentional object. Uh, it's the object that remains invariant in sense experience, right? The, the orange that remains the same even as I turn it in my hand or the blackbird that remains the same bird no matter how I express it when I'm talking about it and pointing at it. There's something invariant in sense experience. It's kind of like Aristotle's substances, but uh, move to the realm of, of sense experience. And of course, in Husserl, the gap between that and any real object is effaced because Husserl thinks the idea of a real object in the sense of a thing in itself is absurd. He says the idea that there could be something that is not at least potentially the object of an intentional act is an absurd statement. And his reason for saying that ultimately is his fear of skepticism. So he talks in his early writings about the city of Berlin, that you can't have two Berlins, the real Berlin in the world and then the Berlin that I talk about, because then there will be no way to bridge the gap, no way to be able to make statements about Berlin, the real Berlin. You'd be left talking about stuff in your mind. And Husserl seems to consider that a reductio ad absurdum proof. I don't see that it is. I think that what you have is you have a problem of how our statements about Berlin relate to the real Berlin. And of course, I think it only happens indirectly. But the sensual object that I have retained is the, is the intentional object of Husserl, more or less. Uh, it's just that I'm also retaining the thing in itself or Heidegger's tool being. Um, Heidegger himself doesn't necessarily have a real object because Heidegger has a tendency to identify the withdrawnness of being with unity. He has a tendency um, to treat being or to treat earth as somehow unified and to treat the multiplicity of beings as something that happens only in the realm of, of, ex of experience. You have to make that case subtly in various textual ways, because he never comes right out and says that, but you can find clues in his work. So um, uh, central object comes from Husserl. And then you had another part of this question that I think I've missed. What was it? Oh, the I indirect relations. Think that, yes, I think that's what it was. I think it was how, if I was correct, really, that my uh, connection to the real object is stems from my connection to the sensual object. Exactly. Well, uh, given Tripolo's acceptance of a basically Kantian finitude, this idea that we're not encountering reality directly, and I can say more about that later if you want me to, why I think that. Uh, and so our, our access to reality is finite. It's sensual. And I, by the way, it's sensual, not sensible. So it's not just the senses as opposed to the intellect. It's sensual in the sense of a direct contact like you would make with the skin of something. Uh, you're making a direct relational contact with something in the case of human experience. So we're not making a direct contact with the real. We ourselves are real objects. We're not just images in someone's mind. We are real objects. I am actually here experiencing. So I'm a real object. What I am experiencing is a sensual caricature or variant of some other real objects. So there's no direct contact between me, the real object, and other real objects. And then since I have generalized that finitude to all object-object interactions, the same problem happens there. No two objects touch directly. They have to touch through a mediator. And that mediator is the sensual caricatures of each other that they encounter. That's what they encounter. And something has to happen within that sensual realm to make a more direct contact possible. And uh, of course, this has been studied historically under the name of occasionalism.
And occasionalism isn't usually taken seriously anymore because it was connected with a certain theology where God is intervening all the time. But I think it's more serious than that. Um, most uh, Western trained philosophers know the occasionalism of 17th century philosophy among the Cartesians, Malebranche. Um, I would go so far as to call Spinoza, Leibniz, and Berkeley variants of occasionalists. There's some debate over how the term should be used. But it actually goes back to Islamic philosophy. Um, it goes back to a theological point where um, uh, the so-called Asherites of southern Iraq had a very uh, radical reading of a particular passage in the Quran. In the Quran, there's a passage about the Battle of Badr where the Muslims under Muhammad defeated the infidels against all odds. They were greatly outnumbered. And the passage in the Quran says something like, you think you threw the stone that slayed the infidels, but actually it was Allah who threw the stone. And the, the mainstream interpretation of that was that that was divine intervention. That battle was a miracle. Allah intervened and killed the enemy against all odds. Whereas the Asherites read that to mean there is no causation without God's direct intervention. Anything that happens is God. Uh, and that was a very radical theological intervention that had huge implications for Islam because it meant things like a murderer is actually not murdering the person, right? Uh, it's actually God who is moving the knife to murder the person. So how could you send that person to hell? And so it turned into a huge debate over whether an innocent person could be sent to hell. So it started in Islam. It sort of leaked through into Western Europe in the same way that uh, Averroes and various translations of Aristotle did. And so you find, for instance, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas talking about this view without accrediting it to every, anyone in particular, and, and Francisco Suarez, the same thing. And so we're mostly familiar with the uh, 17th century Europeans who were occasionalists. And people tend to laugh at this, that, you know, how, how uh, superfluous to have God coming in and doing everything, how unscientific. But then if you think about it, what's really going on there that's interesting is not the theological part. It's the, it's the part that a causal monopoly is being given to one entity, God's. But another causal monopoly is given in more respectable modern European philosophy in the case of human Kant's, where a causal monopoly is given to the mind, whether it's through habit and customary conjunction in Hume or whether it's through the outright category of cause and effect in Kant's. Uh, what they are retaining from occasionalism is the idea that one particular entity, the human mind, is the place where causation is to be found. And that's what bothered me, the idea that one particular entity should have causal power if nothing else can have it. And if you start reading a little further into the 20th century, occasionalism makes this strange comeback, first of all, in Whitehead, because Whitehead thinks entities all apprehend each other through God, and God contains the eternal objects. So things like white and just and strong are actually ideas contained in God. And this is entities prehend each other, relate to each other through God. So he's keeping the monopoly. But then it's Bruno Latour, recently deceased uh, French anthropologist and sociologist of the sciences, who uh, de-theologizes Whitehead's renewed occasionalism. Latour raises this interesting question of who linked politics with neutrons in France? Because you would think politics and neutrons. Politics is very ancient. Neutrons were discovered by Chadwick in 1932. Who would think that neutrons are political in any way? Well, of course, they became political through the atomic bomb. And in France, it was Frédéric Joliot Curie, the son-in-law of the Curies, uh, who was the first to urge France to start investing in neutron research in case war started. 
France then, of course, was knocked out of the war quickly. Um, but Latour raises this question again of there has to be a mediator in any relation. Who's the mediator that brings politics and neutrons together? In the case of France, it's Julio, other people in other countries. But then Latour has this problem of if Julio is the mediator between politics and neutrons, how does Julio touch politics? How does Julio touch neutrons? And he ends up with this kind of fairly weak pragmatic solution, which is that you, you can keep talking about mediators in between and you just sort of stop when it gets boring. Stop when it's no longer interesting. But that's not a metaphysical solution to how causation can occur. How can two real objects occur? The way this is solved in triple O, or at least provisionally, is by saying there are two kinds of objects. And the only way to bring two real objects together is by having a sensual object as their mediator. And it's just like with magnets. You can't put two North Poles together. You can't put two South Poles together. You have to have different kinds of magnets touching each other. In nature, the uh, same sexes are never fertile, barring some kind of amazing technological breakthrough. Same, side, same sort of idea. You need two opposite objects to make the connection possible. That's Tripolo's basic approach to causation. And maybe that's more of an answer than you wanted, but you got me on that line of thinking. Yeah. Well, it's possible that I might be, well, I'm sure that I'm missing uh, a lot of things that are going on here, but right now, maybe what I'm missing is the distinction between sensual and sensible. But while I am totally able to entertain the idea that I connect through this cup by being in contact with a sensual object, an initial obstacle to my fledgling understanding of this particular principle of triple O is how two objects such as like uh, this controller and this cup that I'm holding, how they interact with one another when I'm not, I don't understand how they could be in contact with uh, sensual objects. And I'm wondering if this is where something like panpsychism might come into your account. Very interesting. Uh, probably, it's, obviously, it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to be a cup or a videotape if there is indeed such a thing as what is it like to be those. So perhaps the best way to look at this is that if we, if we imagine two things being in direct physical contact, which most people think they can imagine at least, that would be different from those two things making each making contact with each other directly, because at most they're making contact with each other's physical surfaces, which uh, is not a rock is not just its physical surface. So two rocks collide together in outer space. They're not the rock is not making contact with the other rock. At most, a, a surface of the rock is making contact with the surface of the other rock, and so there is some kind of direct contact there. It's just not a direct contact with the whole of the other object. It's uh, one particular facet of the object. And so uh, that's why I call it sensual, not because it involves sense experience. It need not involve sense experience. It might be as stupid a, an experience as you imagine. It might just be utterly unconscious. So let's start with that before we get to panpsychism. And the reason I call it sensual, and I've thought about changing the terminology because most people, when they hear sensual, think sensible. They think sense experience. I just meant sensual in the more erotic sense of a direct contact. You're pressed directly up against something, feeling it, or maybe not even feeling it. You're just as close to something as you can possibly be. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of a rock or a videotape or a, a coffee thermos. 
But just imagine the closest possible contact between two entities like that. <clears throat> That's still not close enough. It's not a contact with the real of that thing, right? Because as I mentioned before, fire and cotton do not drain each other to the dregs uh, because there's more depth to both of those. Ob those objects could unleash other forces in other relations. And so obviously any one relation is not exhausting the terms of the relation. And so for me, uh, the term sensual is just a placeholder for whatever it is that amounts to very close contact without being an essential contact. So that's, you still look puzzled, but, but that's how I would go about answering that. No, I, no, you, I think you've answered my question and it was okay. a, a misunderstanding on my part, but now is, right. is much more coherent for me. Um, as, as for, I have as for, two more. Should I answer panpsychism first? Or? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just finished an interview with my colleagues, John Goff and Nikki, uh, not, no, sorry, John Cogburn and Nikki Young. Philip Goff is what I meant to say, Phil, because they're writing about my position and about Philip Goff's position, kind of an interesting new uh, uh, panpsychist position in the analytic tradition. And uh, in this interview, some of my own differences with Goff came up. Uh, we're both interested in Russell's neutral monism. Goff takes that in a panpsychist direction, whereas I do not. Uh, Goff is looking at psyche as something that must be the intrinsic properties of things, because, of course, Russell makes the case that science gives us the relational properties of things, not the intrinsic properties of things. And that, that's a critique uh, to which Goff and I are both somewhat sympathetic. And in Goff's case, uh, he wants to read psyche as being what is intrinsic, uh, going all the way down. Not so for me so much. Um, and the reason for that is I'm worried about the using the term psyche too soon because I in the discussion, because I think when people say psyche, they mean something like sense experience or like mental experience. And I think there may be types of experience so primitive that they might not deserve that term. And so what I'm talking about when I talk about sensual versus real I think is something a lot more primitive than the distinction between psychic and non-psychic. And so I'm not, I'm open to the idea that psyche emerged at some point in the history of the universe, because for me, precisely, it's not a basic ontological category. I don't think psyche, I think psyche is a very interesting thing in the cosmos. I don't think it necessarily deserves to be a basic ontological piece of equipment any more than backbones do or than stars do. I think we can say all these things probably emerge at some point. I, I do think that relationality is a basic ontological term, just like non-relationality is, or that real and sensual are. But I don't think that uh, a psyche necessarily has to be part of the ultimate furniture of the cosmos when you get down far enough. And um, for me, entities are psychic only when they relate, not just because they exist at bare minimum. So you could imagine objects that exist but aren't currently in relation to anything else. How might that happen? Well, because for me, all that happens for a thing to exist is it has to have enough components to build it. So there are components in the universe right now that may have built something that's really there, but that thing simply isn't interacted with by any other objects right now. And so it's therefore what I call a dormant object. And so the example I used to use when I started talking about this after the 2008 election was the McCain Victory Coalition. There may have been a McCain Victory Coalition out there, or maybe more than one, that the McCain campaign simply failed to unlock or failed to interact with enough to bring it into play to win the election. Um, it may mm -hmm. have been there for the taking. It just wasn't interacted with. And um, uh, 
other things like that that we can imagine all if you just think of missed opportunities what does that mean if there's a missed opportunity it means something was there that nobody capitalized on and so that those might be cases of real objects that aren't interacted with by anything um so i don't think that just because a thing exists just because it's been built out of parts and is in the world somehow that it's necessarily affecting other things that's what i mean by dormant objects and so i i think dormant objects are distinctly non-psychic they're not interacting with anything else and so they don't encounter anything else they couldn't possibly be psychic the last question i wanted to get to regarding just what triple o is before we turn to some of its extensions is that in one place i i saw you write that philosophy generally as you see it has a closer relationship with aesthetics than with mathematics or natural science and then in another place you wrote that there's a one principle of triple o is that aesthetics is first philosophy and I was wondering just just what this means. Right. And actually, what it meant in the original instance is that philosophy, like the arts, is something non-literalist. In the sense I was saying before, that you're not going to be able to paraphrase an artwork, a poem, or a painting. And this has been known for a long time by literary critics. And of course, it's been known for a long time in analytic philosophy that you can't really paraphrase metaphors. You know, Max Black was writing about that already back in the 60s. You can't really say what it means that the chairman plowed through the discussion is his example, or man is a wolf, his other example. And so that's that's been out there for a while, uh, both in literary criticism and in analytic philosophy, and then in, in continental philosophy and Jose Ortega y Gasset, another of my great influences, the Spanish philosopher of the early 20th century. Um, and so what I was trying to stress when I talked about the close kinship of philosophy and the arts was the non-literalist aspects. Um, I've since started to regret that a bit because, again, that was sounding too one-sidedly continental, right? It was sounding too much like a science does not think position, which is not what I want to say. And I'm, I'm actually quite fascinated by the philosophy of science and the history of science. Um, I, I spent a lot of time on history of science as an undergraduate, one of my passions. And so I've tried, I'm going to be publishing more about the philosophy of science in the near future to try to balance those scales a little bit better. Um, because philosophy is also not identical with the arts, right? The arts are trying to produce a kind of object quality tension, and that's not quite what philosophy is trying to do. Philosophy is not just an artwork. Uh, so you'll hear more from me about that in the future once I've figured out exactly what I think about the difference between philosophy and the arts. But when you talk about aesthetics as first philosophy, well, I'm trying to talk about um, aesthetics in a wider sense, aesthetics in the sense of non-literalism. So if, if you look up object-oriented ontology somewhere, what most of its defenders and detractors are going to say is that object-oriented ontology believes in the withdrawal of the real from any direct access. And that's, okay, that's there. But you don't need triple O for that. You can get that from Kant. You can get that from Heidegger. You might be able to get that from more ancient sources too. So it's only part of it. What triple O is really about is about the tension between objects and their own qualities. The fact that an object both has and does not have its own qualities. That's the paradox. So what is the relation between an object and its own qualities? You have to drive that wedge between. And I use aesthetics as the term for an area of human experience where that is happening most obviously. So in, in the case of an aesthetic work, 
there are obviously qualities there. We can describe what some of the qualities of a sculpture or a poem are. And yet the actual aesthetic object remains somewhat elusive. We cannot literalize it. So you have a real object with sensual qualities. That's the tension. Just like you have in Heidegger's tool analysis, where when the hammer breaks, you become attentive of, to some of its qualities, but you, don't, you still don't really know what the hammer is. You're aware of its existence, but you, it's not like you've been able to paraphrase the hammer successfully once it breaks. You're just aware that it's there. It's drawn attention to itself as something somehow mysterious. Well, um, for phenomenological reasons, I hold that you can't really have qualities without an underlying object holding them together. But this is a mysterious case since the object withdraws from direct access. What is it that holds the qualities together? And my interpretation is that it's I myself as real objects that holds the qualities together. So for instance, when I'm reading the poem and I hear Homer's metaphor, wine dark sea, the wine qualities are there for the taking. It's the sea, this wine-like sea that is mysterious and ungraspable. And the only way that metaphor works is if I perform it mentally myself. I have to somehow try, difficult though it is, to become the sea with wine-like qualities. So there's a performative dimension to the arts there. Interestingly, one that is excluded by Kantian aesthetics, which requires a disinterest and a distance by the spectator uh, from the work. And also in formalist art criticism of the 20th century that followed from Kant, like Clement Greenberg and Michael Fried, so-called formalist criticism is very much based on the paradigm of the distant observer who is not emotionally involved with the artwork, who describes in disinterested fashion. I don't think that's possible. I think that uh, aesthetics requires a performance. In fact, I think performance art was probably the first artwork historically. I can't prove that, but I suspect it. And so there's a, a kind of reality in which we, the beholder, become directly involved in a way that isn't true in literalist experience where we're simply describing. And so, for instance, you could have insincere scientists, right? Because the constraint on scientists is evidence. The constraint on scientists is justification not truth, right? If we talk about justified true belief, scientists simply have to be constrained by the best available evidence. They don't have to believe in the ultimate truth of whatever theory they're having. Whereas in philosophy, it's a little different. And certainly in the arts, it's very different. Um, in philosophy, for instance, there are certain cases where com we're committing to truth without sufficient justification. That's the Kierkegaardian moment of philosophy, that you're never going to have enough time to decide whether Christianity is true or false. There's never going to be enough evidence for or against we have a finite lifespan. You're going to have to make the decision to become a Christian or not, or whatever it is or not. Our, our convictions already always outrun our evidence. And that's the performative side of philosophy, the sincere side of philosophy that is absolutely essential in the uh, sphere of the arts. Now, what's interesting is that this also comes up in philosophy of science sometimes. There's a moment where Karl Popper is backed into a corner and says that uh, attempts to falsify theories must be sincere, which is kind of funny. You wouldn't think sincerity would come up in the, in the uh, case of science. And then I think it, it's Popper or Lakatos commenting on him who says, but the requirement of sincerity cannot be formalized, which I thought was a brilliant line. There's no way to formalize that this statement is also sincere. It's not something that could have been said ironically. So, um, uh, Philosophy requires that we're putting ourselves on the table. We're putting ourselves into play with whatever doctrine we're, we are uh, advocating. The devil's advocate is somehow out of place in philosophy, strangely enough, in a way that it's not out of place in the sciences. And it would be totally out of place in the arts, which is ironic because the arts have drifted more and more towards irony 
across the decades since the 60s. And I think that's probably shot its wad. And it's time for art to take a different direction from irony. But that's that's maybe another topic. Something you said that really jumped out at me that is will, I guess, constitute us going off on a bit of a tangent is that you suspect performance art was the first art. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't ever thought about this before you mentioned it. But as soon as you said it, I thought, you know, there's something to that uh, pretense or children, children engage in pretend play uh, very early on in their development. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we, we pick up a banana, we talk to the banana and pretend it's a phone and we understand that as children. And it does strike me as quite possible that before we realized that other objects could be used to represent other objects, we ourselves could represent other people or objects. Is that sort of what you have in mind when you say that you suspect performance art was the first art? Exactly. It's right up the alley of what I was talking about. And also not just children, but animals. The the way that animal play often is pretend fighting. Uh, It's amazing how animals just know how to do that. And uh, I think specifically, you mentioned another thing about children is they love masks. And I I suspect that masks may have been among the first artworks. We all know about cave paintings because they're very durable. We have cave paintings that are tens of thousands of years old. Masks aren't going to last that long, but I had a very powerful experience um, years ago where uh, I was in graduate school. I was invited to a Halloween costume party. I procrastinated. I left my costume to the last minute. So I'm at the costume store on the afternoon of the 31st of October, and there wasn't much left. The only half-decent object left was a a really scary-looking zebra mask from Tanzania. It had kind of smoky-looking eyes like it had risen from the dead. And then I came up with the proper clothing to wear with that, a a black turtleneck with white adhesive tape stripes. So I went and I won the contest. Um, People love my costume. And then I took it to my parents in Iowa and left it in a locked cabinet for years. And then years later, I was back visiting my parents and I noticed that mask. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember this. And I pulled it out and put it on. And my parents' two dogs more or less lost their minds when I put it on, even though these dogs had known me since they were puppies They knew what I smelled like, and smell is much more important for dogs, of course, right? But they were barking at me like I was truly a monster, and they wanted me dead. And one of the dogs actually came up to the side and jumped up and knocked the mask off my face. He was so disturbed by this. So that somehow when you put on a mask, you are transformed, especially for animals and children. Um, A child can put on a Spider-Man mask or a, a Batman mask, and they think you can't see them. And then in the adult realm... Um, the mask of the Ku Klux Klan. What is so terrifying about that? It's not just that it symbolizes certain abhorrent racist views. It's that the mask itself is also terrifying. It makes them somehow inhuman, just the fact that they're wearing that. They wouldn't be nearly as scary if you saw their faces. So um, yes, performance. And then, as I mentioned before, speech act theory has picked up on the very powerful force of performative statements as opposed to constitutive ones. Uh, the fact that they actually commit you to something, they change your reality in a way that simply making prose statements does not. And uh, almost any statement can be made ironically. Um, and then there's the question as to whether or not making the statement ironically really changes the meaning of it. And this is a big thing for Zizek. Maybe this will come up when you talk to him. But 
Uh, Zizek, uh, one of my favorite stories about him is he was watching a documentary on neo-Nazis in Berlin. And the interviewer asked the, the leader, you know, why are you a neo-Nazi? And he expected this stream of racist invective in return. And instead, the neo-Nazi said, I'm a neo-Nazi because of the breakdown of paternal authority and diminishing social mobility. And so in a way, uh, he's giving himself a distance from neo-Nazism because he's above it. He's talking about it like a sociologist, analyzing the root causes of why he became a neo-Nazi. But then Zizek's point is, yeah, but he's still a neo-Nazi. That doesn't get him off the hook. He's, he's still making these statements and there's still something performative about it, even though he's pretending to be the scientist speaking about it objectively. Um, another example that comes to mind is The Onion. I don't know if you read The Onion at all, America's Great Humor newspaper. Um, there's a fantastic editorial called, from years ago called Why Can't Anyone Tell That I'm Wearing This Business Suit Ironically? And it's about this guy who started off wearing a business suit and carrying a briefcase to parties ironically and his friends started calling him a sellout. And he says, wow, my irony just sailed right over their head. They actually think I'm doing this seriously. And then he goes and talks about the rest of his life that he ironically went to law school, ironically started working for this corporate law firm and people think he's serious. How stupid are they? He ironically married this clueless girl from Connecticut who likes shopping. And then finally, they had these two ironic kids who look like something out of a Dick and Jane book. The point being, you know, he's been as ironic as he can possibly be, and yet this has been his life. And so there's a question there about the status of irony and about whether some performativity doesn't sneak into it at the end somehow. Um, anyway, these are just different versions of my critique of literalism. The idea that simply making a statement about the properties of things is an adequate relation to them. And my sense that things like aesthetics that involve the beholder of an artwork uh, actually tell us more powerful things about reality and how it works. Also, we have in continental philosophy, Alain Badiou, who has kind of extended this Kierkegaardian theme in his work. Badiou is all about truths, right? He thinks that basically most of human life is about boring situations. Things are going along normally, nothing's happening. We're all living our mediocre banal lives. And then suddenly someone grasps a truth and he thinks there are political truths, which for him are always communist revolutionary ones. There are aesthetic truths, there are scientific truths like quantum theory, and then there are amorous truths, falling in love, whether you're married or not. An amorous truth has infinite implications and you have to commit yourself to it regardless of the consequences. That's another part of his theory. But what interests me for the moment about Badiou's theory is he says a truth requires fidelity, that a truth is not a truth unless someone retroactively is faithful to it. So in a way, truths only appear after they first appear. Someone has to look back at a truth and say, yes, that was a truth that briefly appeared in our mediocre human world, and I'm going to commit myself to it and await the next one. Uh, I'll await the next revolution because I really believe in the Russian revolution or whichever one it was. Uh, and what I like about that is the way he is bringing this performative dimension into truth the same way as Kierkegaard was. The idea that justification is not enough in philosophy, that philosophy has a certain element of sincerity or fidelity in it that doesn't necessarily occur in science, again, because a scientist just has to go with the best evidence. They don't necessarily, you can have a scientist who sees no evidence for Christianity in their science, yet is still a faithful Christian at home. There's no problem with that. You couldn't really have that in philosophy, right? If someone's going to make the Kierkegaardian leap and become a Christian, that's going to reflect itself directly in their philosophy in a way that it might not in their physics. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that I think is one of the the best spent tangents on the the podcast in general so far. I really enjoyed uh, your thoughts on on the masks uh, okay. in particular and the performative art. And you know, in that same spirit, because that was such a great example, I think continuing to talk about some more examples would be a really nice idea. And you already mentioned, well, I think of him as H.P. Lovecraft. I think you called him Howard Philip Lovecraft. Is that what his? Howard Phillips, I did that somewhat ironically. H.P. is the standard. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I got his name right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Howard Philip Lovecraft. And you wrote a book, Weird Realism, Lovecraft, and Philosophy, that connects the two. And as I was looking through the book, uh, something that you said jumped out at me. And after having talked to you so far in this conversation, it seems like I must be getting this quote wrong. But so what you said is, while Hume thinks that objects are a simple amassing of familiar qualities, Lovecraft resembles Brock, Picasso, and the philosopher Edmund Husserl by slicing an object into vast cross-sections of qualities planes or adumbrations, which even when added up do not exhaust the reality of the object they compose. And actually, now that I read it, though, I think I I actually, I do see what you were saying. So Hume is the literalist who thinks that an object uh, like a piece of art is just uh, the sum of its qualities. But these Picasso, uh, Husserl, Brock, uh, and you argue Lovecraft, think that there is something more to the object, the art object. That's right. right. And you, you can see that in the Call of Cthulhu, his first story in that group of stories, where he talks about a statue being made by the artist. Um, and I don't have it in front of me now, but I, I remember more or less what it says. It's, it says it would not be entirely inaccurate to call the image a kind of combination of uh, a pulpy tentacled head with a dragon-like torso and a vaguely humanoid outline. He says, and yet it was the general outline of the whole which made it truly disturbing. So the general outline of the whole is something over and above those three qualities that we've heard, the octopus head, the dragon body, and the somewhat humanoid posture, uh, that somehow there's something over and above those three qualities. It's like, you know, there's Hume's famous example of the Golden Mountain, You can imagine Lovecraft writing about Hume's Golden Mountain and saying it would not be entirely inaccurate to call it a regular mountain that somehow had a golden color. And yet it was the general outline of the whole that made the Golden Mountain truly disturbing. So something's amiss there in the relation between the object and its qualities. It has those three qualities, and yet it doesn't have them. And this is one of the staples of Lovecraft's fiction. Uh, The fact that his descriptions always fail. And he doesn't just say it was so weird that nobody could possibly describe it. That's a cliche of bad fiction, right? Instead, he makes the effort while also kind of letting you know that his effort is not quite succeeding. Mm -hmm. There's a similar example in his story, uh, The Dunwich Horror, where uh, Wilbur Watley, who's not quite a human creature, he's half human and half monster, is killed by a guard dog on the floor of the Miskatonic University Library and begins to degenerate. And he says, what was on the floor of the library? 
um, he says it would be trite and not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it. So he's undercutting the cliche. But then he says something like, and yet it would be proper to say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour were excessively bound up with the known life forms of planet Earth and its three dimensions. So he's hinting at something seriously wrong with the geometry of this creature. Uh, and then he goes on to try to describe it. And he goes on to try to describe it by all of these crazy descriptions that you can't quite integrate in your mind, which I think is an, a different sort of tension. Um, that first tension, the one where you've got the mysterious object that has all these qualities on the surface, okay, that's, we might call that a Kantian tension. That's like the thing in itself that leaves all these qualities sitting on the surface, but you can't quite get at the object because there's a general outline of the whole that can't quite be put in words. Then there's the other tension in, in Lovecraft. There's actually four of them, but the two, there are the two main ones. The second one is the one where he's talking about an object where the object isn't mysterious, but it's the sheer amassing of qualities that you can't possibly master. And the, the clearest example I give in my book is, you remember that, the architectural one? Oh, um, I was just commenting. I mean, we, we're back to finitude again. Oh, finitude. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. That's, that's, that's that. That's the Kantian side of Lovecraft. But then there's the example of in At the Mountains of Madness when he, the character sees the reflection of the colossal Antarctic city in the clouds and he describes it and he doesn't say anything like no human pen could quite do it justice. He acts as though it's easy to describe it. And then he starts listing all the qualities of this city and there's like 17 qualities and they're impossible to integrate in your mind. It's like there were beetling table-like figures and curious needle-like spires and clusters of five and all of these really strange descriptions that you couldn't put together easily. And this is what reminded me of cubism. The fact that in cubism, in painting, and also in Husserl's descriptions of objects, there's nothing hidden or withdrawn or mysterious. There's nothing Kantian in Picasso or in Husserl. That's ruled out. Everything's put on the surface for a reason. That's what cubist painting is. It's just that there are so many incongruent facets of a thing in a cubist painting or even in a phenomenological description, uh, that it's very hard to integrate them all together into one object. So the tension between the object and its qualities is brought about in a different way there. Lovecraft is a master of both of those in his prose. And then I go on to say there are two other kinds that also appear in his prose less frequently. But uh, there are four in, in Triple O, four tensions between objects and their qualities, which I argue are the root of time, space, and what I call essence and ados that what we normally think of a time and space are really just tensions between objects and their qualities. But that's, that's another can of worms. In terms of Lovecraft, I think what's so important about him is he is able to vividly give the reader the sense of this reality that objects and their qualities are really out of joint. And this is what is causing so much dis emotional and mental disturbance for his characters. Many of his characters end up in insane asylums or commit suicide in these stories for a reason. Uh, because... Uh, the things that happen is, in his stories are much more horrifying than any of the knowledge we think we already have. Uh, and he'll often say things like um, that story, The Color Out of Space, that was made into a, a movie a couple of years ago. He starts talking about this strange iridescent color that came from outer space and landed in the well in this piece of property in Massachusetts. Then at one point he says, really, we could call it color only by analogy. 
So we're getting into scholastic metaphysics there in a way that you can't even really say it's color. And then he says the same thing in the Dunwich Horror about the sound made by the monster on the mountaintop. It's, he says, um, again, it's really only sound by analogy because it had a kind of ghastly infrabase timbre that spoke to human senses deeper and older than hearing. So it's sort of like sound, but it's not quite sound. Or it's sort of like color analogically, but it's not quite color. Lovecraft is the master of this. And this is why he's so horrifying. I think this is also why he's very harm, hard to film adequately because you can't really visually represent these tensions the way he want, a, movie, a filmmaker would want to or the way a painter would want to. Lovecraft paintings are usually kitsch. You know, they just so show some giant octopus creature with dragon wings shambling around. Mm -hmm. It looks like bad fantasy art, but as a writer, it works. Right. There's something very particular about the medium that lends itself to the imagination uh, in a way that visual representation just can't get at. But you are very much succeeding in making me want to read Lovecraft. And it's also quite funny that what you've described as his 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 failing descriptions um there it's almost like braggadocio in which he's saying mm -hmm. like these fictional objects i've envisioned they're so amazing that uh my words could just never never convey this to you right but it then it also connects to the philosophy very very nice um, and again, again, a lot of people will say that's a tired old science fiction trope, but it's not because Lovecraft is the one who undercuts that gesture at the very moment of doing it because he will go on to try to describe it. And I think the only person I found who does it nearly as well is Edgar Allan Poe, who must have been one of his influences, even though he doesn't talk about him a lot. Uh, Poe, Poe has a way of doing that in language, too. Hmm. Well, one other example that I wanted to ask you about in the art world is you have a chapter in your book, Art and Objects, on the connection between Dada, surrealism, and literalism. And mm -hmm. we've, we've already talked about literalism. But is the idea here that surrealism and Dada are a salient counterexample to this literalist idea that art objects are just a sum of their qualities? What I was getting at was more, first of all, that Dada and surrealism are usually mentioned in the same breath. I think people who are specialists on those realize the differences, but you know, there was overlapping membership. Dada and surrealism both have a spirit of humor that was new to art at the time, although now it's become dominant. But what I said in the book is that Dada and surrealism, in a way, are using opposite, performing the same experiment with opposite controls. And so one of the critiques that you know, formalist critics like Greenberg and Freed never like Dali and other surrealists, because for the 20th century formalists, what's important about modern art is that it's aware of the flatness of its medium. It's aware that painting is flat on a canvas and it shouldn't be trying to create three-dimensional illusions the way post-Renaissance art did. And so they like Cubism and they like Miro and they like, um, um, they tend to like abstract art. Um, and they see surrealism as just kind of a tired old academic art that simply uses funny content rather than traditional content. But the way I see it, that was necessary. That uh, in order for Dali to be able to draw our attention to unorthodox content in his paintings, he needed 
<clears throat> to take for granted the traditional medium of representational oil painting. So in other words, Dali will paint things like uh, flaming giraffes quite often in his paintings. Now try to imagine Dali doing that in a cubist style. That would be mentally too busy, too much would be going on, right? Already a flaming giraffe is something you're not expecting to see in a painting. But then if you also had to see it in the form of 17 different cubist planes, it would simply be too confusing. Whereas if you look at the great cubist painting, they're all very uh, banal objects like, you know, a guitar or a candlestick, a clock, a portrait of a person. Uh, there's not as much room when you're innovating in technique like the cubists to surprise people with unorthodox content. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I see the two as doing something uh, opposite in a way. And so they shouldn't be unified despite the fact that they're both having fun playing jokes on traditional arts in a way. I didn't mention Dada yet, though. <clears throat> Dada was the real comparison. Uh, I meant to say that Dada, uh, like the ready-mades of Duchamp, also use uh, very simple objects. So Duchamp would not have Urinals. been able to... What's that? Urinals. Yeah, right. Urinal or a, a wine bottle rack or a bicycle wheel. Duchamp would have been too confusing if he had inserted a very complicated object into a gallery and said, this is an artwork, like a a uh, Cray supercomputer that wouldn't have had the effect he wanted, even though they didn't exist at the time, but say they did. Because then our focus would have been on why a Cray supercomputer, why all these detailed mechanical parts. Um, it's better that it's something simple and something that is usually and immediately recognized as being non-art. And so in a way, Duchamp is the counterexample to my claim that art can never be literal but it's the exception that proves the rule. Uh, the reason it's the exception that proves the rule is that the, the literal objects only become something like an artwork because it's inserted into the gallery context. Right. None of us would encounter a urinal in a bathroom and say, oh, it's art. Uh, it has to be encountered in a situation where it's not supposed to be. There has to be a tension between the object and its context for that to happen. And uh, I was making this the case that, um, and this might sound a little conservative to some artists, that in a way we've, We've, we're at the point of exhausting Duchamp's innovation, I think. You know, Duchamp was doing that stuff around the time of World War I. It made a bit of a stir in America. didn't make much of a stir at all in Europe because people were occupied with Cubism and the movements that came after, abstract expressionism. Duchamp came back to the forefront of aesthetic discussion in the 60s, thanks to American pop artists. And since that time, um, you're you're much more likely to laugh in an art show than you are to experience a profound aesthetic emotion or anything sublime. You're more likely to chuckle at the, the cleverness of what some artists came up with, like Damien Hirst putting a chunk of rotting meat in a gallery and flies are getting electrocuted as they come in. You're more likely to laugh at his cleverness than to have a what we would normally call an aesthetic reaction to that. And in a way, I think that has commandeered the arts. And I think it's likely... It's something different from that is about to happen. That's already been going for 50, 60 years. That's become its own kind of orthodoxy. So um, I was exploring the idea that maybe surrealism is a way out of that um, because it's just at least it's somewhat familiar, but it's at least a little different from what the Dadaists were doing. It might be a good transitional step out of this Duchampian era of the arts. One of the ideas that came well, up. Well, uh, Speaking of transitions, uh, architecture has already come up a bit in our conversation. 
when you were talking about living in the fictional object that is Los Angeles. And it's funny, mm-hmm. uh, I think when I initially reached out to you, the idea had been to talk mainly about philosophy and architecture, yet now we're only getting into it an hour and 20 minutes into our conversation. But before becoming aware of your work, I hadn't known of the connection between philosophy and architecture at all, um, analytic, continental, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised to discover that you're a professor at the Southern California Institute of Architecture. And what is the specific connection between architecture and your work as a philosopher? Yeah, it's, I'll tell you a little bit of history here uh, before I get into the, the meat of it. I've had this weird career. I only ever get offered one job at a time, and they are jobs that most philosophers wouldn't want to take. So I just kind of stumble along and I get these amazing opportunities. First, the American University in Cairo. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the great good pieces of good fortune in my life to get to spend 16 years in Egypt, learn Islamic philosophy, explore another culture, travel. And then when I was getting ready to leave Egypt, I just kind of stumble into an architecture school, which is one of the world's finest, uh, though most people in the humanities haven't heard of SciArc. It's one of the avant-garde architecture schools in the world. It's been around for 50 years. And the backstory to that is that architects started taking an interest in my work around 2011, 2012. Um, architecture, architectural modernism started going through a crisis in the 60s. It's still around. It started uh, undergoing some criticisms in the way that it was suppressing history. Uh, and so you got both deconstructivism and historical postmodernism emerging, emerging as reactions to some extent to high modernist architecture with glass cubes and concrete, the things we're used to seeing in the high modernism of Le Corbusier and uh, Mies van der Rohe and these sorts of people. Since that happened in the 60s, Architecture has gone through a series of generation-long infatuations with philosophers looking for outside stimuli. Now, these are our continental philosophers. So first, Heidegger, second, Derrida, and third, Deleuze, maybe 10 to 15 years apiece. And I sort of came along at the moment when Deleuze was running out of fuel among architects. I mean, he, he still has his advocates, but it was no longer the big new thing. And what you got in Deleuze's case and his influence on architecture was the idea of continuity, a smoothness in architecture, um, the idea that um, there shouldn't be corners on buildings, that buildings should contain folds, that interior space shouldn't be that strongly articulated. It should be all kind of gradual, all the changes, that doors and windows shouldn't be over-articulate in a way to distract from the overall flowing character of the architecture, that buildings should flow into their environment. These are the kinds of things you got from Deleuze's impact on architecture, as opposed to Heidegger's or or Derrida's, which are very different. Now, Triple O is very different from Deleuze in that sense. Triple O emphasizes highly articulated objects, objects that hide, objects that are not what they seem to be, objects that are not just one, but are carved into pieces beforehand, before humans even notice them. And so it was offering a set of design alternatives to a group of architects about my own age who... um, were stimulated by some of these writings. And it just so happened that some of these people were, were concentrated at SciArc. I was hired. I've been here now. This is my sixth year, ending just ended my sixth year, and I'm planning to stay for the foreseeable future, uh, partly because at my age, it's hard to be a student again. And the learning curve in architecture is so high, both on the history and theory side and 
even higher on the studio side of being expected to be on student reviews and knowing what to say without sounding like an idiot, I've had to learn the rudiments of a new discipline pretty quickly. And that's just such an amazing way to keep your brain alive at my age. I'm going to be 55 next week. Um, it's hard to learn a new subject at that age because of your teaching duties. Well, now my teaching duties are connected with it, so I have no choice but to learn it. And then it connects up further with my uh, Art and Objects book because the case I was trying to make in Art and Objects is that I'm a formalist, but I'm not a Kantian formalist because I do believe in the autonomy of the artwork, but I don't believe the Kantian position that the artwork is supposed to be autonomous primarily from the human who observes it. That's his separation, right? That there's supposed to be disinterest. The artwork is not supposed to be agreeable to me. It's not supposed to have a theatrical impact on me. I'm supposed to be judging it in a disinterested fashion. And so I, I, my conclusion in Art and Objects was I agree with formalism that the artwork has a certain autonomy from its context, but it doesn't have to be a total autonomy. It needs a relation with the beholder and it needs a certain relation with the context that's finite. So an artwork can be site-specific in three or four different ways without just being a holistic wonderland of connection to everything. And that turned me back to Kant's remarks on architecture and the critique of judgments, because Kant is very negative about architecture in that book. He says, architecture can never really be pure beauty because it's useful. And so in a sense, architecture is always contaminated because it's linked to a human purpose. And he said that interestingly about a couple other things. He said, a beautiful human body and a beautiful horse have the same problem because a beautiful human body is somehow contaminated with lust and a beautiful horse is somehow contaminated with, I'd like to ride it, it's really fast, or I'd like to win a bet by betting on it in the Kentucky Derby. And so architecture has very low status for Kant. And what I tried to show in my Architecture and Objects book is that yes, architecture is relational, but those relations can be derelationized, they can be formalized. And what I looked at was the form function distinction, which is the typical distinction in architecture, which only goes back to the 1750s or 60s, but didn't really get going till the late 1800s with Louis Sullivan saying form ever follows function in buildings. It was considered a kind of modernist gesture against needless ornamentation. Actually goes back earlier to a Venetian priest named Carlo Lodoli in the 1700s, but Sullivan usually gets the credit for it. And so I talked in the book about form and function and how they're usually misconceived in architecture, because usually when people talk about architectural form, they're talking about the postcard view of a building, the visual look from a certain privileged, privileged position. That's the form of the building, whereas the function is its use. And as I see it, there are problems with both of those definitions. The first problem is uh, in terms of a, the function being relational, well, yes, in an obvious sense, but in another sense, the functions of most buildings change over time. And in a everyday sense, SciArc, where I work, that started as a freight rail depot for, I think it was the Santa Fe Railway in Los Angeles. And uh, then it became a kind of bombed out building where the homeless were crashing. And then my Uber driver one day told me he used to bribe the homeless to leave and hold raves in there. So it's had several functions. And then around 2000, 2000, I think, is when SciArc moved in. So now it's an architecture school. So you can't say it's ever had the same function. And yet there's a certain deeper functionality that has stayed the same. It's a long and skinny building. And so the function would be something like lengthy movements along a narrow horizontal corridor. And that has certain functional consequences. 
Uh, one of them is, in a trivial sense, you always run into everybody every day when you go to work. You can't avoid anybody at SIARC because everyone goes down this same narrow corridor that goes from one end of the building to another. We don't have much classroom space. We only have about five classrooms because these cavernous freight spaces are used for architecture studios. And that's had some curricular uh, implications for the school um, that have affected some of our program choices. And so there's all these strange functions from the freight station that leak into a, our functionality now as a higher education institution. And then uh, it turns out there's a great architectural theorist and architect, uh, um, Aldo Rossi, Italian architect who died some years ago, who wrote about this problem in more detail. He did what he called a critique of naive functionalism and pointed out that most buildings that last a long time do not have the same function over the whole lifespan of the building. And Italy is filled with these. And, and uh, Rossi being Italian talks about these buildings as monumental buildings. Monumental buildings are simply ones that structure space over long periods of time and either change their function or never had a clear function to begin with. And so in a way, we have to look at functionality as a deeper term than use, a kind of abstract functionality that unlies the underlies the specific use of any building. And then when it comes to the form of a building, well, first of all, the visual look of a building isn't really its form because there are lots of different vantage points you can look at a building from. And also you have to go inside the building and you can never see all the building at once. So in a way, a building is an experience based on memory and it's a kinetic experience that you have to integrate together like a novel or a, a film that you're moving through and holding together. And even Peter Eisenman, who doesn't agree with what I'm saying here today, wrote back in the early 60s as a very young theorist. He thought this is why you need very simple geometrical shapes as anchors for the memory, because overly complex shapes are going to make it hard to remember what you saw. And actually, I, as, a, as an amateur architecture jury member, find this too. I don't like overly complicated student building shapes that I can't remember the next morning. I like things like the Sydney Opera House that are fairly easy to sketch from memory or the St. Louis Arch, things that are slightly unusual, but also sketchable. Right. So um, it turned and then uh, turns out uh, there's a reading by Jeffrey Kipnis of a Rem Kohlhaus project in London, the Tate Modern project that he lost the competition for, that also makes the case for a kind of more abstract space, uh, abstract form of a building that isn't quite congealed in any particular form. And so I ended up arguing in art and object, sorry, architecture and objects, that it's very possible to, to do a kind of derelationized architecture. Why derelationized? Because it's not aesthetic unless it's deliteralized. And to deliteralize something, you have to detach it from its usual relations, its usual context, its usual associations. Something interesting that just comes to mind as you talk is that I would think that triple O might be more closely tied to an aesthetic that is extremely ornate. So I'm thinking of like big medieval churches with so much going on because it's meant as an offering to God. And I would think that having these tremendously ornate structures would sort of emphasize the uh, complexity our own finitude and our inability to connect with external objects. It's funny you should say that because this sort of minimalistic modernism um, begins with this idea of space as something you take and then you analyze it by cutting it into pieces. And so there's a sense in which that kind of space or that kind of design 
doesn't entirely outrun the mind that contemplates it. And so you're right. It's funny what you said, because I'm a fan of Gothic for this reason, uh, that uh, I once read a great description about the difference between Gothic and modern. And that is that Gothic is agglutinative. It takes one thing and then it adds another thing and then it adds another thing and then it adds another thing. And so in a way, it creates surprises, which is a hallmark of triple-O aesthetics, the idea that you never want to be entirely sure of what you're getting into. Um, and also this idea that an aesthetic object somehow outruns you. Uh, it might be a little longer than you want it to be or a little bigger than you want it to be, uh, because then it's an object that is a little bit out of scale with the human who observes it. And so that creates a certain depth to it. And so, yes, uh, even though I've always typically in my life admired classical aesthetics and admired classical treatises on aesthetics, there's part of me that likes the non-classical, that likes things that go on too long, that have nooks and crannies that aren't immediately visible, where there's some hiddenness. This is what Robert Venturi in his famous architectural book calls complexity and contradiction in architecture in the 60s. I also like my, I, I too am drawn to complexity and contradiction and to, uh, the unexpected. Hmm. And this is one of the reasons I, I like Gothic so much. Well, there, there are a couple of things in the, in the book that you mentioned that I was hoping for some clarification on. And sure. one is you reference uh, David Ruiz's thesis that architecture provides human beings with, I think it was their, their primary sense of reality. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if there was something if, if this is quite literal in the sense that right now, most of my sense perception is devoted, I guess, maybe not my attention, but is devoted to the walls and the windows and the furniture yes. around me, or if there's something much deeper going on here. And what's, how would it be deeper? What, what do you have in mind? I don't know. That's what, that's what I was asking. Uh, because when I think of my primary sense of reality, I think of that just being some metaphysically deep and open statement or phrase. Yeah, David, uh, it's funny you mention him because he's my colleague at SciArc, but also was my fellow undergraduate student back in the late 80s. And he turned out to be the one who got me involved in architecture. Yeah, I think he was the first architect to discover me or one of the first to discover my stuff. And yeah, I'd never really thought about it until he said that, that most of the time, when we encounter the world, we're actually encountering a designed world. We're encountering architecture. So I spend way more than 50% of my day in my apartment. Uh, the, most of the rest of it is either inside a car or inside my building. And even when I go out, I mean, I'm in a city, so most of what I see is artificial. Um, even if I go to a state or national park, there are trails that are designed by somebody. There's road signs. And uh, I think it was Bruno Latour who mentioned that we wouldn't be able to follow a map without signs. Right, that things on a map are correlating with things on road signs, not with things on nature usually. Like if you just cross a river when you're driving, you wouldn't necessarily know what river that is unless there was a sign next to the river that you could match to the label on the map. And so it's only in the rarest of cases that we're just out there facing nature alone and have no idea where we are. Um, and so architecture really is the world we inhabit. And of course, now that's changing. So it's not so much physical as virtual architecture, like what we're doing right now. We're actually not that far away because you're in Palo Alto, I think, or nearby, and I'm in Los Angeles. But uh, this happens with me all the time that I'm lecturing in Iran or India or somewhere um, with pretty much no delay. And uh, uh, actually, SciArc is one of the architectural schools taking the lead on designing virtual environments. 
as if that may be what architecture is in the future. Designing, uh, we have a whole a whole popular program dealing with fiction and entertainment. So developing video game architecture or Hollywood architecture, because a lot of it is that now, designing virtual architecture. And you know, it's funny, uh, we're undergoing this pedagogical debate right now about chat GPT like everyone else is. But we have this unique problem at SciArc, which is that our students in architecture studio, which is way more than half of their education, have already been encouraged to use AI. And so we were in the position of giving a kind of mixed message, telling them to lay off the AI. And so, in fact, we can't do that. We had to incorporate ChatGPT in a positive way. The way I did it was say, you have to start your paper with ChatGPT's response to the paper prompt. And then you have to argue against or with ChatGPT. Because there's no way at a school like this to just say virtual reality is not allowed because they wouldn't be able to do their studio work without MidJourney and some of this other software that helps create incredible products. So in a way, these architecture students, I think, are forced to recognize that the next few decades are going to be about human curators collaborating with artificial intelligence instead of pretending we can just have humans without this machinery. That uh, at some point, students are probably going to be trained to collaborate on paper writing rather than write everything from scratch. And I feel like we're at the pedagogical frontier here trying to figure out how to do that without lapsing into outright cheating. Um, so I can't remember your original question now. I feel like I've drifted away from it a bit. It was about... Um, uh, My original question was about Rui's thesis, but I uh, think that you covered it. And now my mind is just... Uh, a little bit blown, though that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, because I, I had never considered virtual architecture <laughs> at all as even a thing. So it's it's neat to hear that that's a focus at SciArc. And I'm wondering if one particular challenge, uh, or yeah, I suppose I'd call it a challenge to virtual architecture, is having to think about how building design should change when you're not experiencing it by being physically inside of it or physically uh, proximal to it. And then also your the way that you observe it is completely different. If you're if you're always envisioning a building through a screen, for example, mm -hmm. then you aren't ever going to be confronted with the same sort of grandeur that you might if you were encountering one of these large gothic cathedrals that we were talking about earlier and how then these concerns should impact the architect's sense of aesthetic when they're drawing or when they're when they're designing it's a great question um obviously things like lights and air conditions are going to become different at least for a while because you can't really control those on a screen nor do you have to yeah. deal with them. You can also obviously violate the laws of geometry on screen in a way. You, you don't have to have Very a building cool. that would make sense. Yeah. You could have an Escher-like Escher -like buildings going on. Very neat. Yeah, you could violate the laws of gravity. There are all kinds of things you can do. And there's a question as to whether that will drive us insane. I think some people have suggested it will drive us insane. Um, so I'm not sure. And then it's been interesting to watch the debate on our faculty between the hardcore built environment people who want us to stick with that in curriculum terms and the others who say, no, architecture is simply becoming something different as it has many times in the past. And we need to start working on virtual and augmented reality. So 
Um, that's the nice thing about being in an architectural school as opposed to a philosophy department. Philosophy departments, for all their wonderful features, tend not to have as much pressure to innovate. There's not as much pressure from the outside world. Hmm. Um, if, if there is, it probably comes from the sciences. And uh, in architecture, there's constant pressure to innovate. There's a competition going on. And there's new technologies being introduced all the time. And this, this software being the latest. Hmm. Well, talking about philosophy departments again, you, you also wrote... I, I don't think this came right after you referenced Rui's thesis, but it's clearly connected. You wrote that if architecture is the primary medium in which human existence uh, takes place, and I think that's the part that connects to Rui's thesis, you also mm -hmm. write, it cannot fail to be one of the most relevant philosophical topics. Right. And when I read that, I was like, huh, that is so true. Why have I never seen any analytic philosophy of architecture? And my first thought was that analytic philosophy is very third personal and wants to be seen at least by, by many analytic philosophers as in as continuous with science. But on the other hand, because continental philosophy is so subject driven and phenomenological, it only makes sense that a continental or a philosopher in the continental tradition like you would be much more keenly aware of your daily experience and where your philo philosophizing is taking place. That's true. There's a willingness in the continental tradition to grab at things that can't really be made into science as easily. Um, and so you, you get attention to some sub subjects that you wouldn't find as often in, in the analytic tradition. That cuts both ways, of course. Uh, because I think sometimes continental philosophers think they're above certain topics that they're not really above, like natural science, uh, which they will simply say in Heideggerian fashion does not think. And that's unfortunate. So, uh, um, yes, I think it does have those implications for philosophy. Yeah. And I'd say that's something I've only learned from working in this environment. So it's not surprising that uh, others maybe haven't seen that as quickly in in. Uh, in various branches of philosophy. But I, I do think more and more, especially as our, our environments are going to be transformed more rapidly by these different technologies, there's going to be m not only room, but more compulsion for philosophers to start reflecting on the environments that we inhabit and what that does to us. What are the backgrounds in which our activity takes place? Things of that sort. So one other thing that I was quite curious about. So you mentioned literalism, I think, first in the beginning of our conversation with regard actually to epistemology or what knowledge is. And then it became relevant to our philosophy of art and then also just objects in general. And another term that I noticed in your writing used often that I'm familiar with actually in the philosophy of mathematics, which just goes to show my point, which is that it, it takes on very different meanings in different contexts. And that's this word formalism. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how formalism or what formalism means, particularly in the context of architecture and the philosophy of the same. The way I use it is in the Kantian sense. And as far as I'm aware, Kant only uses it in his ethics. He does call his ethics a formalism because it's abstracted from any specific principles um, the fact that an ethical 
action simply has to be done in such a way that it could become a universal law. And then it has variants such as people must be treated as ends, not as means. But then this term formalism has come into aesthetics. Kant does not use that in the critique of judgment as far as I'm aware, but he is considered the godfather of aesthetic formalism, and rightly so. And the way he means formalism is that something has an autonomy, that it's disconnected from its context. So an ethics, a formalistic ethics is one that's not consequentialist. It's disconnected from any consideration of what the consequences are. In arts, uh, what Kant means by formalism is the idea that art is disconnected from the way it, whether or not it makes us feel agreeable, whether or not it pleases me to see a movie like Field of Dreams about my home state, Iowa, is irrelevant to discussing the aesthetic merit of Field of Dreams as a cinematic piece. Um, also, the fact that the artwork and the um, beholder, as Michael Fried calls it, are disconnected from, from each other somehow, even though for Kant, it's the beholder that's more important. It's the subject that's more important than the art object, because for him, art is ultimately about the conditions by which the subject encounters it there's still that separation between the work and the beholder. And so this is what I mean by formalism. I mean a kind of derelational sense. In mathematics, it's very different, of course. Uh, just like realism can mean different things in different contexts. Uh, oh, yeah, formalism, formalism for me means something that's autonomous, something that is decontextualized, de derelationized. And uh, what, it mean, what it has meant in architecture, uh, it's, it's been a 20th century term and Originally, it meant formalism as opposed to functionalism, I guess, right? Because functionalism was seen as kind of the core of modern architecture, that you're not trying to decorate a building with ornate historical styles. Its look is simply supposed to express what it does. And of course, the critique has been made that that was never true because something like streamlining buildings wasn't always necessary. And yet streamlining became kind of the standard look of modernism. And so you'd have a streamlined look to your buildings just to telegraph that it's a modernistic building, even though that wasn't needed, even though it wasn't really functional in all cases, except maybe on tall skyscrapers that had wind shear and things. You don't really need streamlined motorhomes and things like that, but people do it because it looks modern. So um, someone like Peter Eisenman, who's most closely associated with, with um, formalism, uh, Peter Eisenman wanted buildings to be self-contained, just like Kant did. And so what that meant for him is that buildings shouldn't be humanistic because like Kant, Kant wanted to separate the work from the human who was enjoying it or appreciating it. Uh, um, Eisenman wanted to do the same thing. So I think in a way, there's something a little retrograde about that. I argue with Eisenman in my book. He's, he's very much been the thinking person's architect for a few decades, but I, I disagree with him on some things. And this is one of them. He thinks the, the um, architectural work shouldn't really have a function as a primary goal. In fact, he sometimes deliberately makes his buildings non-functional for that very reason. He has cases where he has a column going down the middle of the master bed or down the middle of the dining table, <laughs> which he says, hey, it makes people think more. Or at the case of the Wexner Center at Ohio State University, he, has, he had paintings and direct sunlight in the gallery that people complained about. So sometimes he deliberately makes his buildings non-functional. But what it's really more about is that he wants the building to be like a text in Derrida's sense, like something that you're looking at that provides the clues for how to read it. And so one example is he takes a, a famous building by Le Corbusier that has columns inside, 
and he notices brilliantly that the columns are closer to the back wall than they are to the side wall. There's more space on the sides and the back. And so he says what he thinks the Corbusier is trying to do is to invite us to imagine the building being extended in depth, but not in breadth. Because it's as if the columns are pushing against the back wall, but they're not pressuring against the side walls because they're not that close to it. And he goes through and gives a series of brilliant readings of, of buildings uh, using that principle. My problem with that is I, I agree with those who don't think you can have non-functional buildings. I think you get sculpture if you do that. And that's not what architecture uh, is. I think yeah. you need a function. And I don't think function is as dangerous to formalism as Lyseman thinks it is. I think you can still have a formalist function, although that sounds paradoxical. All you need is a derelationized function. You need a function that's detached enough from its specific function that an aesthetic gap is created there. So uh, in the cases of monuments that Rossi talked about, or in the case of Sciarc, where the fact that you have this old historical meaning of a freight rail depot still there in tension with its current architectural usage, arch architecture school usage, creates a kind of interesting gap between the function and the specific use that it has here and now. That for me is an example of a good uh, function, a derelationized function in architecture. And I think if architects don't do that, they're missing an opportunity. They're missing an opportunity to aestheticize the function as well as the form of the building rather than leaving it literal. Now, something you said that I just want to clarify is the distinction then in your uh, terminology between statue and architecture, just the role of function in architecture that is lacking in a statue? Y yes. Um, I guess you could say both a piece of architecture and a sculpture could be site-specific because some art artists do say their sculpture is site-specific. When you talk about a site-specific culture, you're talking more about a, a, sorry, sculpture. You're talking more about a sculpture that interacts with other parts of the environment, like a river or something. And there's an interplay between those. The human is not really invited into that interplay, except in the derivative sense of a, a beholder. Whereas in architecture, the human is invited into undertaking activities or inhabiting a space. And so I think that's the difference. And there might be borderline cases where you can't really tell whether something's sculpture or architecture. But at the end of the day, things fall into those two categories pretty clearly. It's one or the other. Hmm. And I guess in, in line with this, this uh, direction of inquiry, is there a clear connection between architecture and art? Like, do you view architecture as just uh, a species of art, the way that uh, statues or perform sculptures or performance or painting are, are just all fall under this maybe loose genus that we can't give necessary and sufficient conditions for? I would say architecture has to derelationize function in a way that art does not, unless we're talking about design and then design's already closer to architecture anyway. So if you've, you've got an, my, some of my favorite artworks at the, at the Met in New York are the suits of armor, which obviously had a function as well. Right. So those, those are already almost closer to architecture because they fall under design, not so much under visual art. In a way, visual art strips away the functional character much more so than you'd find in cases of design. Hmm. The and, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that 
regarding your question about architecture not failing to be one of the most important themes for philosophy, what I would say is that throughout the history of aesthetics, there's usually been one genre of art taking the lead with philosophers. So sometimes it's literature. It's in Aristotle's case, it was Greek tragedy. In, um, in Nietzsche's case, again, maybe Greek tragedy, but also opera because he was thinking about Wagner. And then you have literary periods, music like in Schopenhauer. And I made the case that it should be architecture now, precisely because I think we're starting to see the failure of Kantian formalism in aesthetic theory, precisely because you can't disentangle the beholder from the artwork anyway. And architects have already been forced to deal with this because in architecture, there's really no way at all to disentangle the human user from the work. And so I think in a way, architectural aesthetic writing is better equipped to take us to where we need to go right now, which is to try to figure out how humans are entangled with aesthetic works at all times. Hmm. Now, uh, the you mentioned the suits of armor at the Met, and mm-hmm. those also happen to be my favorite works of art at the Met. And oh, wow. they're, yeah, they're they're my favorite works of art at the Art Institute of Chicago too. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but I, well, I like fantasy writing and things like that oh. a lot as well. But do you have any insight into why? the suits of armor would be your favorite pieces of art at an art museum when they weren't even, well, they have this design element to begin with, but they weren't just pure art objects. They, as you mentioned, as you said, they have a function. Why, why have all those things? I mean, this is a question particular to you, why they'd be your favorites. Well, you mentioned fantasy writing, and I think that's actually part of it that um, I talk about derelationizing things and history in a way is one way of deration sorry, de-relationizing things. The fact that suits of armor are no longer a part of our everyday worlds. They don't really have a utilitarian function now. They have more a literary and aesthetic function already. So you come to suits of armor with your aesthetic eyes already open, in a sense. Whereas if it were, um, the Met had an exhibit of beautiful U.S. Army uniforms, something like that, or astronaut uniforms, you might have to take a perform a kind of complicated mental maneuver to view those purely in aesthetic terms. Or older cars are easier to view in aesthetic terms than 2023 model cars. Right, for the right. Same reason. Because they're more on the functional side when they're 2023. Whereas uh, 1950s cars are so much more fun to look at uh, because they no longer seem functional. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that you also like the suits of armor the best. I, you're the first person I've met who said that. Um, mm-hmm. I used to go to the Met for the paintings, and then one day I just found myself captured in the suit of armor room, and it's never been the same since. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, that's that is very insightful of you that we are. I'd never thought of that before. That, with regard to the cars in particular, that we we see old cars and we perceive them much more we perceive the aesthetic dimension much more readily than we would with uh, current models. But I remember even as a kid, I grew up in Chicago. So we would go to the art Institute occasionally for field trips. And Mm -hmm. I was always just uh, uh, obsessed with the, the suits of armor. I always thought they were so cool. That's a, I don't know. Did you watch a song of ice and fire? I, I mean, game of Thrones. No, because I don't have HBO, but I'm, I can't wait till it's on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. No, not. But I mean, one of the things that I 
love so much about that show is the costume design, the the suits of armor, the sigils, yes, uh, this this sort of thing. But we just finished rewatching the Lord of the Rings films and certainly enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to a place like uh, Dubrovnik, Croatia, where a lot of Game of Thrones was filmed, you have that immediate aesthetic reaction because it seems like a city from another place, like some other cities. Venice is another. You can't undertake a normal day of life in Venice. It feels like you're in, in a magic world. Um, so something about the past automatically aestheticizes. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be that far back, right? I, Mad Men has the same effect on some people. Ironically, especially those who lived during that time in a way that I didn't, 1950s and 60s. My mother is is drunk on that show watching it. Um, not even so much for the visuals as for the different rules that existed. Like she talks about watching kids play in the plastic thing from the dry cleaner, which you would never let your kids do now because right. it would suffocate you, right? Or people having a picnic and just dumping the trash on the ground and leaving after the picnic, something you would never do now. Um, those, there's something aesthetic about those differences as well. Mm-hmm. The, I'd like to end, I guess, with another more personal question, something that I was curious about as I was preparing for this conversation. Well, one, in our conversation, I was it was very apparent to me that you have a an almost encyclopedic uh, memory, which mm. is quite cool. I mean, the dates uh, we remember. Well, I don't. I don't even remember the dates that you mentioned, and it's been an an hour or two that we've been talking. But does this have any connection to your productivity? I mean, you're a very. I some some authors take being called prolific uh, as a as a pejorative, as an insult, but I mean, in, in a very positive way, you're quite a prolific writer. How does that, what's your, what's your work schedule like? What's your writing like? How are you able to do so much thinking and work? Well, I should start by saying that I was one of the most unproductive graduate students ever. I had, I was one of those who had five or six incompletes at one point and was the last in my peer group to defend a proposal and one of the last to defend my dissertation. And I didn't have a single publication to my name other than graduate school sports writing that I did as a side hustle until my first book came out at 34. So I didn't start prolific. And some of it is circumstantial. It's that I I stepped into a situation in Egypt where tenure was impossible initially because there was a quota per department. Our department was already over it. And then they invented this new rule that if you publish above and beyond, they can make an exception. And so I started saying yes to everything and then it became a habit. So that's the ex- external reason for p- being prolific. The internal reason is that I do my best thinking when I'm writing. And so if I want to think, I have to write to think clearly most of the time. I don't, I don't think in words. It's a struggle for me to put my thoughts into words. And so I, I need to be actively trying to put it into words to make it communicable, transmissible. And so I'm just... Uh, writing a lot. And then now it's the fact that people are usually asking me to write stuff. So the number of times I actually sit down and say, I want to write an article on this and send it out to anonymous referee journals. And it was entirely self-motivated is very few. Usually it's somebody has an anthology. I just got a letter from Russia the other day saying it's the hundredth anniversary of Paul, Paul Feyerabend's birth. Would I like to write something on Paul Feyerabend? So I said, sure. It's a chance to go back and read Feyerabend for the first time seriously in 10 or 12 years. So 
Now I'm going to have an article about Fire Robin because this person is writing an anthology. So just not saying no is one of my secrets. Uh, books usually come out of my own motivation, but not always. Sometimes someone comes to me and asks me if I'm going to do a book on such and such, and I do it. And then the connection with my memory, probably. I, I would say that I had a great memory throughout my life. It's not what it used to be. Now that I'm going to be turning 55 next week, it starts to fail more often. I miss, I, I lose names that I've known for decades. So I'm definitely experiencing some of that. But one of the things about my memory is that it's always been very spatial, like that I can't remember what somebody said unless I remember the posture they were standing in and what room they were in when they said it. And so I have to recreate the whole mood, what I was feeling emotionally when they said it. And what that means is that uh, a memory is tied to all kinds of things for me, kind of like Proust, I guess that I don't just remember what somebody said about something. I remember this whole flood of other connections that were going on at the time and what else I was doing that day. So uh, it's always kind of an adventure to dip back into my memory. Well, uh, Graham, this has been such a great introduction for me to con contemporary continental metaphysics. And I also particularly loved talking about um, masks, performative art, and then the virtual architecture so thanks again so much for for doing this with me and i hope we cross paths again soon since we're only up, up and down the coast from each other mm -hmm. that'd be great hold on geeslings before you go please uh like subscribe follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Please do so.